Good morning, church. How you guys doing? Good. Uh, before we get into the text, I wanted to give a little sneak peek, a little sampling, something to make us hopefully salivate a little bit for where we'll be going in the next few weeks, years, months, who knows. Uh, <clears throat> we're finishing our series today uh, on Christ building his church from Matthew 16. And so next week, we're going to be starting a new book. Uh, and we've been praying about it. The others have been meeting together, seeking the Lord, uh, seeing what, what maybe would be the best thing for us. Do you, know, you want to know where we're going? Yes. Okay. So it's a book of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. And we will be in the Gospel of John. So we're going to be starting the Gospel of John next week. We're going to be spending three years on the prologue, just John 1, 1 through 18. Just there. Uh, no, who knows how long it'll go, but we are, we are going to fix our eyes on Christ. Uh, we are going to see him as we've never seen him before. And so for some of you, that means you'll actually, people will get saved hearing who this man Jesus is, and that he's more than a man. But for all of us, it also means we're going to find Jesus better than we ever found him before. Because the goodness and the beauty and the riches of Christ are deeper than we ever thought they were. And each time we encounter him in his word, the gospel is better news than we knew it was before. So you can start reading through the gospel of John. We'll be starting next week. Um, I'm excited for it. So, but first, we need to conclude this series. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And if you're new, my name's Travis. I predominantly do junior high and high school ministry, and I uh, have some uh, pulpit duties on in the main gathering on Sundays, uh, but glad to have you here. Uh, but let's get right into God's word. The title of this sermon is The Final Completion of the Church. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you right now, 
seeking your help and seeking your favor and your blessing on the word that you spoke out. We're mindful that we are coming to one who is unlike any of us. Forever you have been Father loving the Son in the unity of the Spirit. You have always known the end from the beginning. Before you there was no God, and after you there shall be no gods. You are God alone. You alone have the words of eternal life. So where else would we go? And you sent your son for us to die in our place, to raise from the dead so that we might have the resurrection from the dead too. So God, I ask for your help right now. Thank you for your word that it is living and active. We ask that you would give us the gift of illumination to be able to see you would take away blindness. And Lord, I thank you for the promises of your word, that they are all true, that there is no error in your word, that it was breathed out by the Spirit of God, that you are not a man that you should lie, nor a son of man that you should change your mind. And so right now we just come under your word. Ask, search us, teach us, show us the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Amen. There's been a shift in the ministry of Jesus here where we pick up the story. He has just announced before this that he will do no more public miracles. He will do no more signs except the sign of Jonah. And now he turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they give some answers, but even more he says, but who do you say that I am? And so in the last weeks we have seen who Jesus is, that he is the founder of the church. Founder of the church is no man, no woman, but Christ himself, which means it is his church. He is the builder. And then we've seen that the foundation of the church is the person and work of Christ on our behalf. He is the Christ, truly human and truly God. He said to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock. And if you remember what's going on there was a wordplay. He was saying, you are little rock and on this big rock, I will build my church. And so rather than being a statement about some kind of pope, this is a statement of Christ building his church on the confession and foundation of who he is and what he has done as it has been revealed by the apostles and the prophets, among whom Peter is one of them. And now all of that is revealed to us in the New Testament. And then if you remember last week, what we went over was what we are prescribed, what are we commanded to do, how are we to live as the church, that we are not to neglect meeting together and encouraging one another and proclaiming the gospel. Now, we finish the series with the final completion of the church, which is to say 
we will finish with the sure promise of our Lord Jesus that he will fulfill all that he sets out to do. And brothers and sisters, this morning, your father in heaven would have you hear the words of Jesus, his son. By his Holy Spirit, which breathed them out in this book. And he would use them to put steel in your spine. To put courage in your soul. To strengthen you who are faint-hearted and weary. He gives us the greatest promise. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so this morning, we're going to look at that promise. We're going to understand how the promise is bound and loosed. And lastly, we'll see how the promise actually heals us. So let's talk about the promise. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Peter has just told Jesus in response to who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in Peter's confession, we see that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is better than just a great teacher. He is not a way of living. That is beautiful and a beautiful vision of life, but rather he is the only way to the Father. He is not the one who makes it so that God can love us, but rather he came because the Father loved us and the love of God that exists in the Trinity. He came because the Son was in willing agreement with the Father to come and make the love of God manifest on this earth. He is not just a miracle worker. And he is not simply a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are just men and women who are full of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we can just do whatever Jesus has done. He is not simply a spiritual exemplar or miracle worker. He is not a forerunner to the Messiah. He is not one among many. He is the one. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one who will save his people from their sins. He is the son of man and he is the son of God, which is not to say that he is created, but he is eternally begotten of the father. He is of the same essence of the Father. He is truly divine, draped in true humanity. And upon this confession, through the apostolic and prophetic teachings that all speak in one accord, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we must understand that term in verse 18 if we're to understand this promise fully. The term gates of hell, pulai hadoi in the Greek. The term, if you look in the footnote of your ESV, which I'm teaching from, or maybe a different translation, it will say 
in the Greek, it is gates of Hades. And as one commentator points out, the idea of Hades here corresponds to the Hebrew word Sheol and the Hebrew idea of Sheol, which refers to the abode of the dead, not to eternal hell. And so the big idea here is death and the realm and the domain of death and all the forces of death. And so Christ says, death and all the forces of death will not stop my church. Now, to understand what we mean by death, we need to have a holistic and biblical idea of death so that we don't have a short and truncated gospel. Because if you don't see what the realm of death is and all of its effects and why death exists, you won't truly understand what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is. So consider with me three aspects of death. We know from the scriptures that death first is actually what we deserve. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we have not just made some mistakes in life and just need to get a little bit better, but that we have sinned against a holy God. That we have said to the most glorious and beautiful being in the universe who created us out of love to share himself with us. Not because he was lonely, but because his love was so great, it just had to overflow. We said, I want your stuff, I don't want you. We said, I want to do things, I want to take your creation, I don't want to acknowledge my creator. I want the benefits of being a son, but I don't want to live as if you're actually my father. And we have rebelled against God and our sin against a holy God rightfully deserves death. That what has gone wrong in the universe is us and our sin. Death is what we deserve. We know from Scripture also that the devil has the power of death. Look at me with, look with me at Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, we are humans in human bodies. He, that is Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. He draped himself in humanity. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And who is that? That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now we know a few things about the devil from the scriptures. We know from Genesis chapter 3 that he is a tempter. And that he can still tempt us today. Now he cannot make us do what we hate and what we never want to do. But rather he, take, he tempts us with our, our distorted loves with our loves that are bent. And he tempts us to do the wicked things which our hearts desire. We also know that he is the accuser. 
And what that means is that Satan at times can say lies, and we know he is a liar, but he will also point out things that are true and accuse us of them. He will point out our sin. And with that, he will say, you deserve to die. You, you don't deserve to be in God's presence. You should hide in shame and guilt. And in this way, he has the power of death. Let us not think that Satan can just kill whomever he wants, that there is an equal and opposite force in this universe to God who has free reign over everything that he wants, but rather he has the power of death in that he is able to look at what we have done and rightly condemn us and say, you deserve to die. And you know what? He's right. Last thing we know about death for this morning is that death is our final enemy. That death will not fully be defeated and it is our enemy until the day Christ comes back and once and for all defeats death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So for the gates of hell to not prevail against the church, our sin must be dealt with. It must be atoned for. It needs a propitiation. The devil must be silenced and death itself must be defeated. So in what way will the gates of hell not prevail? Well, I want you to remember the sign of Jonah that Jesus spoke of. And if you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet who rebelled against God many times, but finally would submit to God. And in some of his rebellion against God, uh, he gets swallowed by a giant fish. And he is in the belly of a giant fish for three days. And in Jonah chapter two, when he's down in the belly of the fish, he cries out to God. And do you know what he says? He says, From the depths of Sheol, I cry out to you. From the realm of the dead, hear my cry. And God hears his cry and rescues him and brings him back into the land of the living. Christ has said he will do no sign but the sign of Jonah. And so this is a significant point for us also as a church and congregation. If you want to know who Christ is, why is it Christ could say in the middle of his gospel, two-thirds of the way through, you know what, I'm not going to do any other miracles. This now is the most important thing. This is what you need to do and know. This is what you need to look at if you want to really understand my life. It beckons us to be Christians who are cross-centered in our understanding of God, who are cross-centered in our understanding of the Christian life, who are cross-centered in our theology. We must understand this text and indeed the whole Bible through the lens of the cross because Christ will go on in just a few verses to explain what that sign of Jonah will be. He tells his disciples, he must die and go down to the land of the dead. And then he will rise again on the third day.
So church, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. All the forces of death and evil, they will not win or overcome it because the builder will lay down his life. And from Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So because Christ died and will never die again, the church will never truly die. And if this is what we are up against in death, then we need to see what we have in the cross because only in the cross can we truly understand who Christ is and what he has done and how the gates of hell will not prevail. And so we're going to talk about four aspects of the cross. It's been said that the cross is like a beautiful jewel that when you hold it up to light reflects a different aspect on each facet of the jewel and you see it shine more beautifully as you turn it around. And that is absolutely true, that there are many aspects and facets to the cross. And what's the things we're going to talk about, you may have heard or might uh, hear in the future in a theology class or in a book that these are theories of the atonement. And I really hate that phrase, theories of the atonement, because it's a bit of, the, of a misnomer, because this is the furthest thing from theoretical. Christ actually accomplished something on the cross. And so let's look at what Christ accomplished on the cross. The first thing he accomplished is a penal substitutionary atonement. Now, what does that mean? Penal coming from the word penalty, that our sins righteously deserve the punishment of God. As you know, evil in the world deserves to be punished. That wickedness cannot go unnoticed. That a righteous judge must punish that which is evil and wicked. Our sins are evil and wicked and deserve punishment. Christ bore the penalty in substituting himself for us that we deserved to be on that cross, that we deserved the wrath Christ bore. If you don't believe that, you haven't understood the gospel. You have disagreed with God about what your sin is. But there's good news because he wants to show you as you look at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, Christ pure of all pure, never a slip of the tongue, never a wicked thought, never something done for the wrong reasons. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Secondly, in the cross, we have a moral example. A moral example. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. As we look at the cross of Christ, we see love like we've never seen it before. You may be going through the hardest relational drama in the universe. And you've spun over in your head so many times. I, and you say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to forgive. I don't know how to move forward. But when you look to the cross, no matter the intricacies and the hurts and the wounds, you find the solution to be able to forgive those who have sinned against you. So serious is Christ about this understanding what he did for us on the cross is when he taught his disciples to pray when they said, we've seen the power in your life and would you teach us how to pray? He said, pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Do you want to know, do One way to know, do I know this forgiveness is have you forgiven those who have wickedly sinned against you? If you say, I can't, you haven't yet understood what Christ has done for you on the cross. Thirdly, in the cross, we have a disarming of the devil. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 say this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against it, us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so what we have in the cross is the putting to open shame of the devil. Because you know what? Like we said, the devil can rightly say, you don't deserve to go into God's presence. You do deserve to die. You should be ashamed. And our weapons against him are not strong enough to say, you know what? I'm actually not that bad. You know what? I do deserve to be with him. I don't deserve to die. In the cross, we see, you know what? I do deserve to die. I should be ashamed for what I did. I I don't deserve to go into God's presence. But Christ bore my shame on the cross and he has forgiven my debt. Christ took the penalty of my sin. I did deserve to die, but he died in my place. And that's why we can say, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he has taken our place. He has silenced the devil. He now stands in our place and says, no, I paid for that. And we can say, you know what? I did, but Jesus. I would, but Christ stood in my place. You know what? I, I do hate that, but Christ's love has made me new. We see a disarming of the devil. And lastly, we have a vicarious victory in Christ. As Hebrews 2 says, he defeated the one who has the power 
of death. And so in him, we have power over death, sin, and the devil. The end goal of the cross is victory. Victory over sin, death, and the devil. It's the fulfillment of the promise God made to his people that I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the end goal, to dwell with God himself, the most glorious being in the entire universe. That is the end towards which we want victory. And the absolutely necessary means, the sine qua non, which means the without which there is nothing, the absolutely necessary means is Christ's substitutionary death in our place. You see, to defeat death and yet have to face God with the wrath for our sin remaining and abiding upon us, unpaid for, is not good news. You don't want to meet God with your sin unatoned for. We need the death of one in our place, and we need an alien righteousness to ourselves, a righteousness that is not ours but a gift to us. So the end goal is victory. The absolutely necessary means is Christ's substitutionary death. And in the cross, are we not also once saved, so given a vision of glory for how to love? That as we look at him laying down his life for us, we see that's, that's how I love. That's what love is. So Christ's death is not simply any one of these in isolation, nor should they be pitted against one another. And the grounds of Christ, for Christ's death and resurrection is substitution. So it is in Christ's death and resurrection that we have assurance that the church will never die. Our sin has been dealt with, the devil has been silenced, and death itself has been defeated. But not only does he give us a promise, but he gives us the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. So let's remember what these keys of the kingdom are. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, so let's talk about what these are. But before we go right into that, I want to talk about a side thing that has often been taken out of this verse. These verses have been taken at times as a command or a delegation given to us to, in prayer, bind Satan. Maybe you've heard that prayer before. You've prayed it yourself. I, I bind you, Satan. Now, these verses aren't about binding Satan. We must remember that we're dealing with the gates of Hades, which is the realm of death. We're not talking about eternal hell. And furthermore, we are not dualists. What is, what is a dualist or what is dualism? Well, dualism is the philosophy that says forever there has eternally existed two equal and opposite forces, good and evil. And good and evil have forever been in strife. And at the end of the ages, we will see if good conquers evil. And we need to believe that good will conquer 
evil, but there is a, a force of good and an equal and opposite force of evil. And some have, have wrongly come to the Bible with this presupposition. But the Bible has no, under, no kind of understanding of dualism. You see, the universe was not created out of strife, but out of the goodness and overflowing kindness of a God who has existed forever in love. And furthermore, evil, evil is not the equal and opposite force of God, and Satan is not the equal and opposite uh, enemy of God who has the same amount of power as him, but he is God's creation. And as Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And at first that can be jarring to us, but we need to recognize what the Bible speaks clearly, that there is one creator God, and there are none like him. There are none who are his equals. There is no one with the kind of power that can overpower or thwart any of God's plans. He alone is God. And so we come to the Bible and we see that he is over all and he is sovereign over all. Furthermore, we know from the Bible that Satan will be bound one day. In Revelation 20, we see Jesus bind Satan. And we know that today we can stand in Christ and pray in the Spirit, stand in the strength of his might from Ephesians 6 against spiritual rulers and forces of this dark age. So Satan is not in the foresights here. He's actually going to come up a few verses from now. He's going to come up where Peter rebukes Jesus and says, you will never have to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. We see what is truly satanic is to deny the cross. What is truly satanic is to say, Christ, you don't have to die. To say, to understand the Christian life apart from the cross. And so we'd be wise to not look to our own authority or words in spiritual warfare, but rather to stick close to the gospel. It's in Christ's death and resurrection that we have any power. And to look to God for all power and authority, standing in the strength of his might, putting on spiritual armor, which what is putting on the spiritual armor of God outlined in Ephesians 6 other than rehearsing what the gospel of our God is. Put on a helmet of salvation. Everything I think is through the lens of what Christ has done for me. A breastplate of righteousness that is not my own, but his. A belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. A shield of faith planted firmly in the promises of God. And shoes fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And so we cry out to God Almighty. And we say, Lord, would you thwart his enemies? Would you protect me? You are the one. So if this verse is not primarily about us binding Satan, what, what do these verses mean? Well, I want us to remember what the historic confession of the Christian church is. What are the office of the keys? What are these things? It is the preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. So how might this work out? Well, we see in the scriptures in Acts 15, uh, 
the church runs into a problem. It's going gangbusters and growing like crazy. And for the first time, Gentiles are coming to be assimilated fully into the people of God. And so they have to ask a question. And the question is, does a person need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Must one receive the marks of Judaism in order to be a Christian? And so the elders of the church fast and pray and search the scriptures and they come out and they say, you know what? No, you don't have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. That's why still today, we are not bound to keep the festivals of Judaism. We don't have to become Jewish in order to be Christians. We see it play out there. Today, it will look primarily like assurance that we are or are not in the faith. What the binding and loosing will look like. Do you want to know if you'll defeat death? Like, how can you be assured you're truly a Christian? Well, as the wonderful resource, the ESV Study Bible says in its footnotes, Jesus delegates authority to human leaders in the church who are called to govern his church on earth under his ultimate authority through the application of his word. And so once again, this is not a kind of papal authority looking to a pope, one man as a representative of Christ on the earth, but rather it is all founded upon the word of God that has been breathed out by the spirit of God. So what this looks like is to the one who is troubled by their sin, we would ask, have you trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ? There is a sure promise that lays outside of you. And it's not about how much faith you have, how much you feel in the moment. It's not the subjective measure of your faith, but it is the object of your faith that saves you. Not how much you have, but where have you placed your trust and your hope? To the one who's made peace with their sin. The keys of the kingdom speak. You will not be able to walk in open rebellion to God. Unrepentant over time and receive assurance that you are saved. You cannot make a lifestyle of sin. It is keeping to the third commandment of our God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But rather the one who has repented of their sins and trusted in Christ shall be saved. So the way this plays out on a personal level in the church as individuals is we're to enact discipline with one another. Now, doesn't that just sound like the grossest thing ever? Like, oh man, what does that mean? Well, this is what it actually looks like. First, we pray, God, if we see sin in the church, God, do I have a log in my eye? Like, do I just have a four by 10 sticking out of my skull right now? And we also have people who speak into our lives. If you are the one who sees all the sin in everyone else's life, but no one ever tells you about your own sin, 
something's wrong. So we make sure to the best of our abilities with other people speaking into our lives, am I blind or do I see something? Next, if we do see some sin, we ask ourselves, okay, was this like a one-off event? Was this something that wasn't right? Or is this a pattern of sin? And then we ask ourselves, can love cover this? Because we're told in the Bible to let love cover a multitude of sins. And if we say no, if we see a brother or sister caught in a spiritual transgression, as Galatians 6 says, then we go to them. We bring the sins up with them that we've seen so that we might win our brother or sister back. And in doing so, we give assurance to one another. I see this in you. You know what, you're right, I'm sorry. Let me remind you of the gospel. Do you trust this? It's a beautiful moment to put our faith in Christ. And it's not just negative or disciplinary, it's also encouraging one another of the signs of grace we see in each other's life. Saying, man, I see this in you, and you, you are different than you used to be. God's spirit is at work in you. We both, both bring sins to one another so that we can repent and be made right with God, and we encourage one another of the signs of grace we see. On an ecclesiastical level, on a church-wide level, this means that the elders of this church have been entrusted to watch over your soul. And it means admitting people publicly into the church and giving the covenant meal of the people of God, communion. And in necessary situations, helping people recognize that a Christian will not be unrepentant in their sin. And so we... We do what Matthew 18 calls us to do. We first go to a brother or sister individually, keeping it as small as we possibly can. And if they listen to us, we've won our brother, we've won our sister. And if they don't listen, you take one or two more. And you go to them and you plead with them again, do you see this? This isn't right. This isn't what Christ has called you to. This isn't what's revealed in the Bible. And if they repent, you have won your brother or your sister And if they still refuse, then you bring it to the church and you bring them before and you tell them before the whole church, you need to repent of this. And if they do so, Lord willing, they're restored. You've won your brother or sister. And if not, in starkest terms, you put them out that they might recognize that they are not exhibiting any signs of grace in their life that we have no reason to believe they have trusted in the gospel. And it's by this exercise of the keys of the kingdom, we have greater assurance that we're genuine. And I want to add that this isn't justification by sanctification, which is to say this isn't you're made right with God because of the stuff you do after you get saved. But rather, this is being able to recognize the beautiful fruits of justification. Christ said that a good tree will bear good fruit. And our, our, our line of sanctification, it might look like the stock market at times. So up and down. But do we come back to Christ? Do we trust in him? Do we make any changes necessary to follow him? So Christ's church will defeat death in all its powers. And Christ has given us his church, the keys.
But how does this all come together? I said, this is the promise you long for. And I'm guessing a lot of you are like, I don't long to hear about church discipline. I don't know that I'm searching out for, the, for four different atonement theories of the cross. How does this come together? How it, does this promise actually heal? Well, this is how. We all taste the bitter cup of death in life. Not fully, but we all get tastes of it. Like some of us in this room are so weighed down by guilt and shame for the things we've done. And even as you say nothing, nothing can keep you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, you say, yeah, except for this thing that I did. Some of us have hearts that ache because of ones whom we've loved because they died. Or some of us have dreams that just feel devastated. Your greatest hope, your good desire, not something bad, not something that you should ever be ashamed to tell someone you hope for. Your good desire has been taken from you or it's never even been within your full grasp. Or maybe some of us in this room are mid-chase in a, after a dream, and your adrenaline is pumping, and you're convinced that it's just around the corner, and it's just within your grip. And if you can just get into the right career, or you can just make the right schooling happen, or if you can just find your passion that longing that you have in your soul, it'll be satisfied. And it's just around the corner. And in love, I want to tell you that all those longings, those hurts, the cracked dreams, you won't be able to find satisfaction in them. They will never satisfy you. And all your own dreams and hopes will in this life be stained by death and never enough. But in Christ, being found in the life of his bride, you have a promise that is a salve to the cuts on your soul. And it is a sure fulfillment of your longings. It is a love that is stronger than the grave. And so I don't know what you're chasing. I don't know what hurt you have. I don't know what ache exists. But I, I, want, I want us to remember two men from the Bible. And we'll see how this fits together in a moment. But think, of, think with me, remember with me, Moses and Elijah. Two prophets, two men of God with dreams and good dreams good desires. Think of Moses who saw the back of God pass before him, saw the glory of God pass before him as he was cleft in a rock, who led the Israelites out of Egypt, who then wandered in the desert for 40 years awaiting the promised land. And God 
finally, at the end of his life, took him to an overlook on the cusp of the promised land. And he said, Moses, do you see it? And he said, yeah. He said, you're not going to enter. And the next verse is Moses died. Or Elijah, the most powerful prophet since Moses. He conquered all the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one who performed all of these miracles. And do you know what he was longing for? That the people of God would turn back to the one true God. That they would, t- they would, they would take their idols and dash them. That they would turn from their idolatry and turn back to God, and he conquered all the prophets of Baal. And he's waiting for all of Israel to now return as the false God is shown to be the false God he is, no God at all. And Israel doesn't turn. And he just gets a death threat from the most powerful woman in the area. I'm going to kill you. And utterly crestfallen and discouraged, he runs. And he tells God, God, I alone was faithful. I didn't bow my knee. Why haven't they turned to you? And God tells him, first, there's 7,000 others who haven't bowed their knee. And you know what? I'm going to put you on the bench. Go anoint these two kings. Pass on your mantle to Elisha. You're coming home. I'm taking you home. And he takes him home in a chariot of fire. Two men, their greatest dreams don't happen. And Jesus says, I am the Christ. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And he says to his disciples, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah because no one will understand what the Messiah must do. He strictly charged him, don't tell them that I'm the Christ. And then he explains how he must suffer and die and rise again on the third day. And Peter rebukes him. And he explains to his disciples how every one of us must take up our cross, and follow him. And it's all building to Matthew 17, where Jesus' glory will shine forth on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who is this Christ? He is the fulfillment of all of our longings. The longing to see glory itself, life itself, love itself, effusing from the author of all life, the glory of glories, the light of lights, the one who is love. And do you know who's there? Moses and Elijah. And those aches of devastated dreams are healed as they are with the one who will bring Moses into the promised land fully. With the one who will save all of true Israel and they see that it is all worth it and God is always wise. 
And if you are in Christ, you will see him one day as he is. Death will not defeat you. Your sin will lie in the heart of the sea to never be seen again. And your body won't ache and you will see all those longings were longings for Christ. And so I long for us to fully get this into our hearts and fully believe it. Because all of our hope in this Christian life is future-oriented. Is God kind to us now? Yes, absolutely. Does he give us some good gifts here? Yes, absolutely. But if you are looking to something in this life to satisfy you fully, if you say, if God would just do this for me, then I would be satisfied, it will never be enough because God has said, you will be fully satisfied when you are with me. And until that day, he will daily be enough for us. But all of our hope is future-oriented. So what does this beckon us to? Well, a few things individually, as people, as individual persons, I want to call us to go all in on the church. Because Christ's church is invincible. He said, my church will never die. He didn't say that about your favorite nonprofit. He didn't say that about a college. He didn't say that about any work institution. And I want to encourage us to find healing in this promise and not outside of it. This is where life is found. The fact that the church will never die. Death, sin, shame, unfulfilled dreams, they're all healed by the promise that Christ's church will never die. And corporately, as a church, this informs what we're all about. If you want to know what Reality Carpinteria is about, we teach the Bible because it is the inerrant word of God. And we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the only hope of salvation. And it is our only hope and it is our treasure and Jesus is our deepest joy and we submit as best as God will give us grace our lives to his word and to serve one another and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And ultimately, it means that it's not all about reality carpenteria. It's not ultimately about our way of doing things. It's not about just our uniqueness. You know, Reality Carp one day could cease to exist. And you know what? Christ's church will go on and never die. Because it's about Christ and his gospel and his church will never die. And no one is going to be talking about a single one of us in this room 100 years from now. But if he tarries, you know who they will be singing the glories of? Christ. So I want to close by reading some of the most beautiful words from one of the most beautiful hymns ever penned. The words come from the letters of a man named Samuel Rutherford and found in the hymn called The The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It speaks of the day we will see Christ again. The bride is the church. The bride eyes not her garment but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land.
Let's pray. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to you be the glory. Would you give us as a church a heart of wisdom? Teach us to number our days and set our hopes fully on the cross and resurrection and Christ's return. Jesus, would you be so kind as to rip us away from any false gods or false trusts, false saviors we put our trust in? Thank you that this is your church, that the weight is on your shoulders and you are able and strong enough to carry it. And we praise you that our sin has been dealt with, that the devil has been silenced one day, you will crush his head, and that death itself has been defeated. In Christ, you have died and risen again, and you will never die again. And so all who are found in you have the hope of glory. Jesus, this is all about you. Please, Purify us and make this church all about you and your glory. We can't wait for the day we see you face to face. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Communion is here for those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. Prayer team to the side for those who need prayer for issues in life or to confess sin. Let's sing to our God. Let's worship the King of Kings, the one who will never die again. Let's set our hope fully on Christ Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man.